0: Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Last week... I began just a brief two-part series for Advent on Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. Uh, I will return to the book of Hebrews next week, Lord willing. But this passage that we've been looking at last week and this week, uh, many believe was, as I said last week, an early Christian hymn. A hymn which sang at the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who took on flesh and came into our world. It's a hymn that consists of three stanzas. And last week we looked at the first two stanzas. The first two stanzas spoke of Christ and His eternal glory in heaven where He existed for all time in perfect fellowship and harmony with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it spoke of how Christ then emptied Himself of His heavenly riches, left the majesty of heaven, left His throne at the right hand of the Father, and took on to Himself In addition to his divine nature, the weakness of human flesh becoming both fully God and fully man. We heard how this act of Jesus coming into our world was an an amazing act of self-humiliation. A willing act of self-humiliation as Christ came into the world as one of us. All for the purpose ultimately of dying for sinners on the cross. Last week's sermon was entitled, The Humiliation of a King, because that's what the first two stanzas of this hymn found in Philippians chapter 2 is about. It's about the humiliation of Jesus Christ as he came into our world 2,000 years ago as the baby born in the manger. Jesus Christ, the King of heaven, humiliated himself, and we should not miss this, that it was indeed a self-humiliation. Jesus was not humbled by someone else. This was the King of Heaven humbling himself to a degree that we can scarcely get our minds around. As the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords took to himself the form of a servant and died in the most shameful and humiliating way as if He were the vilest of all criminals. And the challenge I put before all of us last week was this, as we reflected on the birth of Christ this past Wednesday, the challenge was to remember that the baby born in the manger was indeed the man upon the cross. The one who would die as the perfect substitute for His people. The one who would become the sin bearer. The one who would pay the punishment for our sins so that by trusting in who he is and entrusting in what he has done for us, we would be forgiven of all of our sins and be given the gift of everlasting life. Now this week, as we look at verses 9 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2, we come to the third stanza of this ancient Christian hymn. A stanza which does not leave Christ in His self-humiliated state, but rather turns our attention towards Christ's exaltation. Last week we heard of the humiliation of a king. Now we hear of the exaltation of the king. And verse 9 picks up right where verse 8 leaves off. Therefore, therefore, because Christ humiliated Himself to the point of death on the cross to redeem His people from their sins, therefore, God the Father has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Paul, the author of Philippians chapter 2, uses an interesting combination of Greek words here when he says that God has... Highly exalted Christ. The word combination is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And literally, it translates to hyper exalted. And he does this, no doubt, to show the contrast between Christ's humiliation and Christ's exaltation. Christ has humbled himself to the ultimate level. Now God the Father has exalted him to the ultimate level. As low as Christ's humiliation was, as low as it possibly could be, so too His exaltation is to the highest level. As high as it could be. This is a super exaltation. And there are several things we see from our text this morning which are included in this exaltation. We see Jesus being given the name above every name. And we see all of the created universe bowing and proclaiming that he is indeed Lord. But before we talk about those two things, we need to understand uh, what Christ's exaltation consisted of. We understand that his humiliation consisted of his emptying himself of his heavenly riches being born to the Virgin Mary in that lowly condition in Bethlehem. It consisted of his taking on the weakness of human flesh, living life in a fallen and cursed world, coming under the power of the law, suffering the accursed death on the cross, and even coming under the power of death for three days. His exaltation, likewise, consisted of actual historical real-life events In the life of Jesus Christ and his exaltation begins, of course, with his resurrection from the grave in the resurrection. Jesus rises victoriously over our greatest enemies of sin, the devil and death itself. He rises the victor, the victim of the cross becomes the victorious king who has triumphed over the grave. And then after 40 days, the exaltation of Christ continued to display itself as Jesus Christ, the risen and victorious king, ascended back into heaven. And he took his proper place upon his throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's upon that throne where he now sits reigning In all power over all creation, and in particular, ruling and reigning in, through, and over the hearts and souls and minds of his people, his radiant bride, the church. And it's where, and it's there where the myriad of angelic hosts surround his throne, always singing out as we read in Revelation 5 verse 12, worthy is the lamb, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's a glorious thought, brothers and sisters. The eternal Son of God, who willingly left His throne to humble Himself and dwell among us, has now ascended back up to His throne where He in the splendor and glory of His majesty, now fully God and fully man is ruling and reigning over all creation and is being worshipped and glorified by the heavenly hosts for becoming the Lamb who was slain. But this is not the full extent of His exaltation as I have said because our text tells us more. First, it tells us that Jesus is given the name that is above every name. Now, what is this name? The text tells us the name is Lord. Verse 11 confirms this by saying every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we usually think of the word Lord as a title, not a name. And it is a title, a title to which Christ holds. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation. He is the author, the creator, the sustainer, and the ruler of all things. But the word Lord, it has an interesting history and meaning in the scriptures. Many of you have probably noticed when you're reading the Old Testament, you often see the word Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Did you ever wonder why that is? It's because in the Old Testament, God revealed to Moses in the book of Exodus His personal covenant name, Yahweh. It's amazing to think about, right? That God would reveal to His people His own personal name. It should be amazing to us. The eternal God God who created all things is on a first name basis with us. His people. But throughout the history of Judaism, the personal name of God, Yahweh, became something that the Jews would not say audibly. Uh, they considered it to be too sacred. And from that idea, all the way into the English translations of the Old Testament, the name Yahweh would be represented by the word Lord, all in capital letters. So when you read the Old Testament and you see that word Lord, all in capital letters, you know it's the personal name of God. In the Hebrew, it was Yahweh. In Paul's day, the Apostle Paul, the Bible that was most commonly used and read by most of the people in the first century was a Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the translators, they too did not use the name Yahweh. Instead, they used the Greek word Kyrios the Greek word for Lord. And it's that word that Paul uses in our passage this morning when he says in verse 11 that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's this name, the personal name of God, that verse 9 of our text is referring to when it says that God the Father bestowed on Jesus the Son The name that is above every name. Paul is saying here that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the one true and living God. Now this does not mean that in his exaltation Jesus became Yahweh. He has always been Yahweh from eternity past it does not mean that the name Yahweh only became Jesus' name after His resurrection and ascension back into heaven. Rather, what we have happening here is a public, universal declaration and recognition that Jesus is indeed Lord. He is Yahweh. Christ's resurrection and His ascension into heaven is the visible display, the proof positive, the creation-wide declaration of of who Jesus is. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, is Lord. His name is the name that is above every name. His name is indeed the very name of God Himself. But now, even still, this is not the pinnacle of Christ's exaltation. It gets better. Because our text points us towards a further exaltation. An exaltation which includes every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, bowing down in front of Christ, confessing that He, Jesus Christ, is indeed Lord Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. This is speaking of a universal a creation-wide recognition of who Jesus is, brothers and sisters. This is pointing us towards a day which is to come in which all creation will bow down in confession of who Jesus truly is. There's so many levels to this idea of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. I can barely begin to unpack it all in one sermon. It's such a simple statement that the Apostle Paul makes here. But it's such a layered statement. First, it should not be lost on us. Now what the Apostle does here is he takes a statement from Yahweh Himself. Isaiah 45, verse 23, where the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul is opening de- openly declaring again that Jesus is Yahweh, that He is God Almighty. He is the same as the one who was speaking in Isaiah 45. One thing you may hear should you find yourself in a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness missionary is the idea they will tell you that the authors of the New Testament never say that Jesus is God Almighty. They'll tell you that it's blasphemy to worship Jesus as the one true and living God. When they do that, you point then to Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, brothers and sisters, and you take them back to Isaiah 45, verse 23, because there can be no mistake about it. The apostle Paul is indeed saying that Jesus is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. He is the one who is speaking in Isaiah 45. Paul leaves us no doubt about who he believed Jesus was and who Jesus is. The New Testament right here in Philippians chapter 2 is the most clearest in the, in the most clearest terms declares to us that Jesus is Yahweh, that He is Jehovah. Secondly, we should not miss how complete the confession Jesus Christ is Lord truly is. These four words, Jesus Christ is Lord, declare to us the entire Gospel. This is why Jesus Christ is Lord was the creed, the confessional statement of the early church. Think! about what is being confessed in this little phrase. Jesus. This is the name given to the Son of God at His incarnation. The name that declares that the salvation of the Lord has come through that little child in Bethlehem. Christ. It means the Lord's anointed. It means that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, who would come and rescue his people, is Lord, is a public declaration, as we heard already, that Jesus is indeed the sovereign God, Yahweh. And so we end up with a beautifully succinct statement in this phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, that declares to us that Jesus Christ is both the sovereign God of all creation and the Savior of all his people. We end up with a beautifully succinct statement, brothers and sisters of the gospel itself. Salvation comes from God to us through Jesus Christ, who is in and of himself, the Almighty God. This is the truth that already all the heavenly hosts, both the angelic hosts and all the saints in glory proclaim day in, and day out. It's the truth. The great hope. That the saints here on earth. All of Christ's church. Proclaim already. This is our creed. This is our confession of faith. Right now. But notice in our text. The great culmination. Of Christ's exaltation. The pinnacle of his exaltation. Will come on a day. When every knee. Will bow. And every tongue. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee, every tongue, and every means every. The commentator Kent Hughes summarized this well when he wrote, Every believing heart will cry it out at the top of its lungs in voice and song. And we with the angels will do it over and over for all eternity. Every unbelieving heart will confess it too. In dismal submission and despair. Even Satan will do it. His knee and tongue will not be excluded. Every fallen spirit will do it. Legion upon legion will do it. Caiaphas will confess that Jesus Messiah is Yahweh. Herod will do it. Pilate will do it. Nero will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hitler will do it. Stalin will do it. Every soul from every age will confess that Jesus Messiah is Yahweh. That day is coming. That day is coming when Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead. And that day will be the pinnacle of Christ's exaltation. And for those who are confessing and believing right now that Jesus Christ is Lord, that day will be a gloriously wonderful day. It's our great hope It's what the New Testament calls our blessed hope. That the Lord Jesus Christ will return in judgment, justly judge all humanity, cast the great serpent and all who follow Him into the lake of fire forever, along with death and the grave. And Christ will purge His good creation and of any and every stain of sin. He will undo the curse. Death and sin will be no more. He will wipe away every tear from every eye of His children. And He will make His dwelling place among His people forever in the new creation. But for those who refuse to bow the knee in this life right now, for those who are rebelliously and stubbornly refusing to recognize Christ's Lordship now, that great and final day, will fill them with dread. And they will not out of a great rejoicing, but rather out of dismal submission and despair, recognize and cry out that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it will be too late. There will be no grace. There will be no mercy for them on that final day. Their fate will be the same as Satan's. The same as the demons. As they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place where the full, just, holy wrath of God will burn hot against them for all eternity because their sin has made them infinitely guilty before the infinitely holy God. My friends, is that you? Are you living this life right now thinking you can reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. Are you living right now as if you have no king, no lord over you? Are you stubbornly refusing to bow the knee to Christ? Then you have heard what awaits you. And the question is, will you not bow to him now? Will you not call on him now as Lord and as your Savior? If you do, if you bow to him now, you will find mercy. Nothing you have ever done, nothing you will ever do can make God turn a deaf ear to your cries of repentance and to your confession that Jesus Christ is my Lord. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said once that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us if you cry out to Him now, if you turn to Him in faith now, trusting in who He is, trusting in Him as the once humbled and now exalted Lord, if you acknowledge Him as Jesus, the One who can save you from your sins, and acknowledge Him as Lord, the Sovereign God Almighty, who rules and reigns over all creation, and you let Him rule and reign over your heart, He will save you. That great and final day when Christ returns in His full exaltation. That day does not have to be a day of dread for you. Instead, it can and it will be the great day of your blessed hope. An eternal day of joy. A day which consummates your final deliverance and brings you into eternal bliss if you look to Christ and repentance of your sins and faith in who He is and what He has done for you. Brothers and sisters, that great and final day is coming. Jesus came once already just as the Word of God promised He would. He will come again one day just as the Word of God promises He will. And it is indeed our blessed hope if we are trusting in Christ. Christmas... Maybe over for another year, but our season of Advent as God's people has not ended because the season of Advent means a season of expectant waiting and preparation. And that is what defines our lives as followers of Christ. We are living lives of expectant waiting and preparation for the return of of our Lord and Savior. We are living lives of expectant waiting for the day when Christ will appear in all of his glory and all of his splendor, a day of the day of his full exaltation, a day upon which every knee will indeed bow and every tongue will confess. A day when we will stand side by side with all of the saints of God, every believer throughout every age and cry out with one jubilant voice, Jesus Christ is Lord, all to the praise of the glory of God the Father. And so we pray and we cry out, the words of the Bible from the last chapter, from the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 20. We say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.